I've entitled this morning's uh, sermon, uh, Whom the Lord Loves, He Corrects, uh, from our passage. Our passage puts it, Whom the Lord Loves, He Chastens. It's quoting from Proverbs, uh, a book about wisdom and how to make wise choices. If you uh, are unwise and you know that you're unwise and you want to be wise, the book of Proverbs is a great book for you because it tells you how to be wise, not from my perspective, but from God's perspective. And uh, the author here of Hebrews points to uh, a verse that I've been fond of for a long time as well. It's uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where uh, when in the Old Testament, uh, it's quoting that verse of, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And uh, if you look uh, backward in uh, the New King James translation, at least, it says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Um, which I think is a little bit easier for us to get a handle on as far as correction versus chastening. Um, but the book of Proverbs also helps us understand uh, biblically, uh, a biblical definition of who is wise and who is foolish. Uh, so are you wise or are you foolish uh, according to the book of Proverbs? Well, if you're unfamiliar with the definitions they give, let me give you a brief overview. A wise man in the book of Proverbs isn't someone who knows all of the, of the right answers. That's, that's a knowledgeable person. Uh, sometimes we might call that person a smart person if they can give you all the right answers to all of the questions you may have. And a foolish man in the book of Proverbs isn't someone who doesn't know right answers. Uh, the book of Proverbs would describe that as a simple man or an ignorant man. A wise man, according to Proverbs, uh, isn't someone who doesn't need correction. A wise man, according to the book of Proverbs, is someone who knows that they don't know and will receive correction. A foolish man, according to the book of Proverbs, is someone who doesn't know that they don't know and they don't receive correction. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been in that place where you didn't know that you didn't know and you thought you did. Um, normally we were a teenager then, um, but it comes and goes uh, in different stages of life. I have a two-year-old who sometimes thinks he knows and he doesn't know, right? And uh, later on in life, in the teenage years, those, that confidence that's misplaced comes back, it seems, and then it's, uh, you know, we move it out on our own and then we discover we didn't know what we thought we knew. And then, then we think we got it again and then we have kids. <laughs> and then what we thought we once knew, we didn't, like I thought I had a pretty firm understanding of like how nature works and the way things are and some theological things I thought I had down and my, my kids constantly ask me questions. The answer to which I have to give is, I don't know. <laughs> I've never thought about that. <laughs> not even once, not even close. Now I know that I don't know. So according to the book of Proverbs, a wise man is someone who knows that they don't know and is open to receiving correction. According to the book of Proverbs, a foolish man is someone who doesn't know that they don't know, and you can tell that they're foolish because of how they handle correction. So it, it isn't the knowledge that you have or don't have that make you wise or foolish. It's how you handle correction that makes you wise or foolish. Are you able to handle correction? Then you're wise, according to the book of Proverbs. If you know that you don't know and you're willing to uh, do, which is kind of my motto um, in most places I go, uh, my work notwithstanding. Uh, when I first took the position I'm in at my, my job, the, the hiring manager for that position was asked, uh, are you ready for, for the job? And I'm like, well, are you going to ask me to do the work regardless of the position I'm in? And they're like, yes. I'm like, well, I might as well get paid for it as long as you're willing for me to be the most improved manager you have. <laughs> I'm going to go for most improved. And what that means is I have a disposition of assuming I'm probably not knowing something I should be knowing. And I recently, this last week, had a, a visit from not my boss, but my boss's boss with my boss. And they let me in on some things that I didn't know. And I was thankful for that <laughs> because I knew I didn't know. And I was like, oh, okay, well, now I know. Um, and now how I handle that uh, is, according to at least scripture, wise. The proverb, of course, doesn't just speak of receiving correction from anyone or everyone, but specifically from the Lord. And we're going to see that whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Notice, first and foremost, uh, there in verses, uh, the first couple of verses, uh, that the Lord corrects his children. 
Uh, note that there's a transition here from what we studied last week to what we're studying this week uh, in the first two verses, a transition from uh, dealing with uh, the sins of others to dealing with our own sin. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you, be, uh, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Last week, we talked about enduring in a world that is filled with unbelievers um, and how hard it is to live faithfully to God in a world that is not faithful to God and in a world that's antagonistic to the Lord. And that is hard, um, but how we respond to that um, can be either obedient or disobedient, could require correction or not. And what he's saying here is that um, perhaps where they're at right now is in one of those areas that they're not doing what they should be doing. And what he's telling them is not so different than what my boss's boss told me earlier this week. Hey, you're not doing what you should be doing. I know. <laughs> Help me out here. Tell me, tell me what I need to be doing. And so he's transitioning from focusing on sinners around the people he's talking to to the subject of the sin that's in the people that he's talking to. And those are two completely different topics. And how God handles that in our life is different as well. How we respond to the sin around us can be sinful. Jesus was never sinful in how he handled the sin around him, right? That's what verse 3 was saying. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. We're told that he didn't say anything. I'm not sure how you respond when somebody's, you know, physically abusing you and you know all of this rejection that Jesus received in his life, he said nothing when he could have said many things. And that's what obedience looked like in his season of life, for him to be obedient to the Lord. When the sinners around him were sinning, he was not. The danger they were in was stated at the end of verse 4, and the danger they were in was not striving or not continuing to strive against sin. Uh, the end of our section, verse 12, he, he encourages them, he exhorts them to strengthen the hands which hang down. If the hands are hanging down, uh, the striving is going to be hard. <laughs> if the hands need strengthening, uh, the striving is going to cease. And so they're in a dangerous spot. But how does God deal with the sin in our life? He corrects us by chastening us. It's no different than any father with his son. Notice what he says there in verses 5 and 6. Again, God deals with the sin in the life of his children by chastening them. Uh, the word chasten uh, could be translated education or training, uh, like if you were training for a marathon, that is a discipline of your body that could be painful. Um, but it's in the context with uh, when he says, and he rebukes or scourges, uh, that, that typically has the connotation that we're in a, in a spot that we shouldn't be. We're in a bad place where it's, it's more disciplinary correction. It's like, you did this and you shouldn't have done that. Or you aren't doing this and you should have been doing that. And I love that he uses the analogy of a parent and a child. As a parent of children and just being around children for many years, even before being a parent, uh, it's obvious to me that children need to be trained. Children need to be trained because they lack Discernment. Discernment is understanding the difference between what's good and not good. Uh, the very first and clearest picture I saw of this uh, was one of the kids in our church some probably eight years ago at this point. Uh, this little one was about two years old walking in the parking lot, found a penny on the ground and just popped it right in their mouth. Lack of discernment. <laughs> That's what they had. What they had need of was correction. Don't put that in your mouth. That's yucky. <laughs> right? Children need correction. And as the children of God, we're no different. We're always in need of that correction. Why? Because we lack discernment. If you're a mature believer, perhaps you recall when you were a younger believer, somebody saying, don't read that. That's yucky. <laughs> That's not good. Don't, don't follow that teacher. Don't follow that doctrine. It's not biblical. It's not right. And you're like, but I don't understand. I'm like, That's fine that you don't understand. It's more important that you obey me right now <laughs> than understand. Because maturity, when it expresses itself, 
expresses itself in being able to discern between good and evil. That's at least how Hebrews defines it in Hebrews 5.14. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use uh, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's how he defines maturity. And how we become mature as children is by receiving correction. God's chastening uh, is evidence that we are his kids. Sometimes uh, we think that, you know, I'm being corrected, and that, that means I'm not a child of God. That'll be a lie that the enemy whispers, or if we don't know any better, that like, oh, if God's upset with me right now and he's correcting me, he must not love me. Uh, and that's a very uh, normal and natural response, but it's also a very immature response to correction. Um, notice how he quotes there, Proverbs uh, 3, 11, and 12, when he, he's saying there in verses uh, 5 and 6, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, or he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. When we're corrected by the Lord, that's evidence that we're, we're the Lord's. We belong to him. We're his kids. Uh, when there's 100 kids in a playground and there's my kids out there and all of them start doing the wrong thing, I'm not spanking all of those kids. I'm just spanking my kids. I don't care if everybody else is doing it. You're not allowed to do this. This is not okay. That's how they know they're mine and I'm theirs and we belong to each other. <laughs> they, they shouldn't think, oh, this is the one guy who for sure doesn't love me and isn't my dad. <laughs> this should be like the exact opposite conclusion. We know that we're God's kids when he doesn't let us get away with the same sin that everybody else at the work is doing. <laughs> they're lying on the punch cards. They're doing all of this. You know, the, the end of the year is coming and the previous... Uh, administration would allow us to, you know, lie on the time card. And then, well, I'm, I'm the boss now. I'm not, I'm not free to do that because the Lord is my boss, first and foremost. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. I can't, I can't lie for you. I'm not free to do that. It's going to be a hard bridge to cross. But it's because the Lord is, is my father. He sees what I'm doing. He'll correct me when I'm doing something wrong. Verse 7, he says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. If you've never felt the Lord's correction, then you should kind of question <laughs> whether or not you're his kid. If you're being corrected all the time and feel like this is evidence against it, no. That just means he loves you more than he loves me. <laughs> That's all it means. How come you get all the one-on-one -on -one time with dad? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> because I have not been obedient. <laughs> the Lord corrects his kids. And we can respond in one of two ways. We can respond correctly or incorrectly. How not to respond is the specific exhortation that he gets out of uh, that quotation there in Proverbs. How not to respond to the correction of the Lord is what we see there in verse 5 and 6 once again. Uh, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. So first he says, uh, Remember the exhortation that you have forgotten. Uh, now, if you're newer in the Lord, you probably remember everything that the Lord's ever told you because you've only been walking with the Lord for a little bit. Um, but one of the things that you need as you grow older in the Lord, or just growing older, maybe not even in the Lord, is you forget things. You need to be reminded of them. There are entire books of the Bible that are dedicated to telling you no new information. It begins with, you already know this, but you need to hear it again. If you're a parent, you understand why <laughs> that conversation is necessary. Sometimes, as a parent, uh, my kids don't listen and remember everything I tell them the first time I tell them. Sometimes... Uh, most of the time, they need that reminder of like, hey, we had this conversation. Remember the expectation I had. Remember what you were supposed to do or not do. And so the first thing uh, the author of Hebrews points out is to remember the exhortation that you've forgotten. An exhortation is, uh, dictionary definition here, is a communication, emphatically, uh, a communication emphatically urging someone to do something. Uh, the way I would summarize that is it's an urgent encouragement. Uh, and some of us 
if you've done sports, had coaches. And that's the only language they knew how to speak. <laughs> it's urgent encouragement, right? They're on the sidelines yelling at you <laughs> urgently, encouraging you to do the right thing. Uh, my kids are in soccer right now, and some of the urgent encouragement of a U5 team, uh, that means under five team, is the other way. <laughs> the, ur the urgent encouragement is you're going the wrong way. <laughs> Just repent, turn around, go the other way. <laughs> right? And so... Uh, that's what this uh, proverb is. It's an urgent encouragement. Uh, it's a timely, it's a word spoken at the right time. It's the right words spoken at the right time. Uh, the Proverbs describe a, a right word spoken at the right time in this way. In Proverbs 25, verses 11 and 12, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver. Like an earring of gold is an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient year. When you get the right information at the right time and then you receive it and act on it, uh, the author of Proverbs says that that's beautiful. It's like, like fine jewelry in a, in a fine setting. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see and perhaps because it's so rare. But the two exhortations he gives, the two not, not right responses. How not to respond? The first exhortation there uh, is in verse 5. He says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. The word there, despise, means to care little for or lightly regard or to make small account. Um, it could be translated in one of two ways, and it brings out different shades of the meaning. Uh, the RSV says uh, to uh, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That means you hear it, but you're like, yeah, I could do it, I could not do it. If I feel like it, if I have time for it, if it's convenient, that would be regarding it lightly. Another way of translating the same word of des despising the Lord's uh, correction is uh, translated in the New Living Translation as don't make light of the Lord's dis discipline. And that's like making fun of it. You're just like, yeah, the Lord wants me to do that, but psh, who's gonna do that? I'm not going to do that. That's not just, it's making it small in either way, either thinking of it more lightly than you ought to or making light of it. And either way is not how we're supposed to handle God's correction. When he's telling us, hey, what you're doing is not right, it's not good, we shouldn't be like, well, if I have time to get to it, then I will. Or who could really do that anyway? That's not the kind of response that he wants from us. The second Wrong response to the correction of the Lord there is in the second half of verse 5. Uh, he says, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Uh, if you have more than one child, perhaps one of your children are more pro, uh, dis disposed to or prone to be discouraged when you bring correction. Uh, there are two typical kinds of people out there. Uh, one, you will push a mile and successfully move them an inch. Another, you'll try to move an inch and successfully move them a mile. <laughs> and just how they're able to receive that correction, what it does to them emotionally. The word here, discouraged, uh, is translated a variety of ways in a variety of translations. It can be lose heart, be weary, giving up, um, fainting, or losing courage. They're all con conveying the same idea. And I, I, I think the, the phrase that I like best is either the giving up or uh, losing heart. I actually saw this happen in a race um, when I was in high school. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was in the mile race and he was running. It was his, he was just kind of getting into running, but he was really good. He's gifted as a runner. And uh, he, he wasn't going to make the time that he, that he thought he was going to get. Um, and he gave up 10 feet before the end of the race and just walked the last 10 steps and two or three people passed him by and then he finished the race and he finished his one mile race in four minutes and 59 seconds and I told him I don't know anybody else in my whole life that I'll ever be able to meet who ran a race and walked across the finish line of a one mile race in four minutes and 59 seconds that's incredible but what what happened what happened wasn't he didn't run out of energy he lost heart he gave up before he gave out the danger that he mentioned earlier of not resisting unto bloodshed was not 
because they didn't have the physical ability to do so, but because they didn't have the mental fortitude to finish. And the danger in correction is that you deflate somebody's heart. Like, like, hey, Austin, you were playing that guitar, and then I, I noticed you, you went to the G chord instead of the D, and I'm like, ah, I'm never going to play again. That could be the response. That's the danger in bringing the correction, <laughs> right? And he's like, don't be discouraged when the correction comes. The correction is coming. But also, don't underestimate the power of discouragement. A discouraged believer is going to be crippled in their walk with God. They may cross the finish line walking, but they could have finished running. So the two dangers, despising and dis being discouraged by the correction of the Lord, they're both solved by the same, same mindset. How do we not be discouraged? How are we not despising the correction when it comes? Is by understanding that God corrects us because he loves us. Now, if you're a parent, I know you know this, that sometimes it's easier not to correct <laughs> than it is to correct. You want to leave on time, the kids are throwing a fit. Do you show up late to the place you want it to be on time to? Because you spent the time, you should spend the time to correct your kids. <laughs> or do you just let it go because it's easier for you? The right decision is the hard decision. If your parents had the same kinds of conversations my parents had with me, it's a conversation I didn't understand until I was older, and that is, this is going to be harder for me than it is for you. And I'm like, I'm the one getting spanked here. <laughs> Let's reconsider your statement. <laughs> one of us has a spoon in their hand, the other one does not. <laughs> if you've ever been in the place where the responsibility was yours to give correction, that's a hard thing to do. It's only possible if you love the person enough. The book of Proverbs says in uh, Proverbs chapter 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I remember one uh, pastor teaching on that verse saying, you don't actually have friends unless you have people who are willing to faithfully wound you. If that's the biblical standard of friendship, then, as we sang, I'm a friend of God, and God's my friend. <laughs> right? His willingness and faithfulness as a friend to speak the truth in love He loves us enough to correct us. He loves us to give us the correct correction. Sometimes, and uh, he'll bring this out here in a minute, uh, the fathers correct because it's convenient for them. <laughs> Stop, you know, sit over there. Why? Because you're annoying your brother and that's annoying me. <laughs> it's not really solving the problem, but it, it temporarily solved the, the problem. God always gives us the right correction. You know, I'm in... I have some people under me at work, and I have to correct them sometimes, and sometimes I walk away from that, and I'm like, I'm not sure if that was the right correction. As a parent, for sure, sometimes I'm like, this is what we did. I don't know if that was right. <laughs> Pretty sure that was right. I think that was right. I really hope that was right. If it's not right, I'll go repent to them. But the Lord is always right. That's the confidence we have. He sees all things. He knows all things. The correction he gives is always correct. The heart that he has is always motivated by love. And there's the purpose in it, he, he states there at the end of verse 10, that you may be holy. He corrects us for our own profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. This isn't something that's unique to just the New Testament. God's relationship with his people has always had this element to it. Perhaps a verse that you know and love is in a promise, one of those uh, you know, books of Bible promises, probably on the cover, Jeremiah 
right? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, and thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Do you know the context of those verses or that verse in particular? It's in the context of the Lord correcting the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel heard that verse while they were in going into captivity, into Babylon. They were going to be there for a while. God was spanking them and putting them on time out as a nation. And as they're on their way out, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, and they're good thoughts. The reason why he had to tell them that then was because they're like, I'm pretty sure I know the thoughts of God, and they are not good towards me. <laughs> there is no future in them. There is, it is definitely hopeless. Like God is definitely in control of all things, but he does not love me. How could, how could God love me and be in control of all things if, if all of this is happening in my life right now? That's, that's what somebody who's on the verge of despising and being discouraged, that's the thought process. That's the thoughts they're thinking. And God would speak to that, and he says, you know, I know I'm sending you into Babylon to be carried away captives. And I'll read uh, Jeremiah 29.10. It says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are complete, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. God, before he sent them out, already had a plan to bring them back. All they could see was the punishment right in front of them. The purpose behind it all is, we're told in verse 12 of Jeremiah 29, he says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to, to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. It's motivated by love. He, he has a future and a hope. But it would seem that up until this time, they hadn't been really seeking after the Lord. They hadn't, they'd been content to do what they wanted to do apart from him. And that in particular is what he was correcting. So if understanding that the Lord loves us and not responding to his correction by despising the correction or being discouraged when he brings it, how are we to respond to his correction? Verses 9 through 13 tells us how to respond correctly to the Lord's correction or the correct response to the Lord's correction, however you want to write it. The first right response is by respecting, first and foremost, the Lord. Notice what he says there in verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? If you're a parent, I want you to notice something that popped out to me while I was studying this is that there is no respect until there is correction. The, the correction precedes the respect. A parent who never corrects is not going to gain the respect of their parent. Just not. There's nothing to respect. Like, hey, you said not to do that. I did it anyway. I understand now why. Thank you for telling me. Hey, you told me not to do that. I didn't do that. I also understand why now, because all my friends, they didn't. I, I'm glad I didn't go with them. Hey, why didn't you tell me not to do that? You knew it was bad. You just let me go. I don't respect that. <laughs> but he's, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we're in a position to respect human fathers, and we're ready to do that when they've corrected us, if that was the right response in that relationship, he says, how much more? The greater argument is that we should be respecting, first and foremost, the Lord. When we don't receive his correction, it's not first and foremost a rejection of his correction. It's first and foremost a rejection of him, a disrespect to him. 
the difference, uh, and one commentary put it this way, earthly fathers exercise their fatherly prerogatives only for a short time and for immediate ends. But God has both our holy lives and eternal ends in view. In the same way, it's nearly impossible to get my two-year-old to understand the long-term effects of some of the decisions he's making. <laughs> it's also impossible for us to completely comprehend at times why God doesn't want us to do certain things. I don't always ask my kids to understand the nuances of my correction. What I want is their obedience so they don't die. <laughs> right? And at times, God's going to ask us to do things that we don't completely <laughs> comprehend. We understand what he's asking us to do, but we don't understand completely why. And if we can trust our parents, who in comparison to God aren't trustworthy, then we can trust God. Like, God, I don't fully understand why you're asking me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because you asked me to do it, and I trust you <laughs> as a form of respect. So first, the, right, the first right response is respecting the Lord. The second right response, uh, the correct response to correction, is receiving the correction. Uh, because chastening, when it's received, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you see that there in verse 11? Now, no chastening seems to be joyful in the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Uh, I had a coach for my long-distance running career in high school, and uh, I'm pretty sure his goal at the end of every practice was to get me to the verge of death and then take one step less, and then he'd be like, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm like, if I'm still alive, I'll see you tomorrow, <laughs> right? He, he was gifted in knowing exactly how far he can push us. We had a, a few injuries along the way that kind of told the tall tale of it, um, one, of, one of the guys he was training, the, actually the guy who walked across the finish line, um, he uh, injured himself while training uh, with an injury that only, uh, he had to go to a sports physical therapist, he ended up uh, poking a small hole in his lung by, by breathing too hard, too fast, too often. And the sports physical therapist that he went to said, normally we only see this in Olympic athletes. <laughs> People who are pushing themselves like to the edge of what they can do. <laughs> like, normally, that's like the field in which we see that. But a good coach will push you to the outer limits of what you can do, and it's always way beyond what you think you can do. And then he takes it back one step, and he's like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. Right? That's what the training does. And in the moment when the training is happening, you feel like death is coming upon you. Uh, the, the author here describes it as uh, not joyful. <laughs> right? But then afterwards, there's an afterwards to physical training, is there not? There's an afterwards to dieting. There's, an, there's a paycheck after you've worked all of those overtime shifts. There's an afterwards. And if you can see beyond the present to the afterwards, it makes it that much more bearable. But you only get to the afterwards if you receive the correction. The word there at the end, trained, has that same idea of Olympic uh, athletes uh, it's the word uh, from which we get gymnasium, where you would go to exercise. Um, and one uh, Greek dictionary put it this way, it's to exercise vigorously uh, to the point of exhaustion so that you would be in the shape that you need to be in so that you can do well, right? These athletes who train for years so that they can do one event for a short period of time really well. And that's what he's saying. The process of being trained by correction has a word, and that word is repentance. Revelation 3.19 puts the two together this way. Revelation 3.19, it says, As many as I love, the Lord writing to a church, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repentance is a privilege that we have in our relationship with the Lord. He could require perfection, and he'd be just to do so. But he gives us the privilege of repentance, the opportunity to be like, Lord, you said to do this thing or to not do this thing, and I didn't do what I should have done, and I did done what I shouldn't have done. 
And then he gives us the opportunity to repent, to say the same thing about it that he says. That was wrong. Shouldn't have done that. When we get called out on our sin, there are two kinds of responses that Scripture says we have. Two ways of being sorry when you're caught. And if you have kids, you've, I'm for sure, experienced both of them. Some kids are sorry that they got caught <laughs> because of the consequences they're about to bear. I don't like the consequences, therefore I don't like being caught. Other kids are genuinely sorry that they did the thing that they shouldn't have done. Man, I really didn't want to do that. I really got angry and I did the thing I shouldn't have done. And I'm very sorry that I did the thing. Not, I'm sorry that I'm about to receive the consequences of the thing. The, the scripture uses this language, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians correcting them. And then they were made sorry. And he was like, I'm sorry that you were made sorry, but I'm not sorry because of the fruit that it produced in your life. You were corrected by it. So it was the very first sorry, not sorry. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry that you were made sad, but I'm not sorry about the fruit that it produced. First uh, Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 10, it says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Somebody who is only sorry that they got caught and that there are consequences is going to do it again and again and again to their own demise. We have two uh, beautiful pictures of this in Scripture, in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, Saul, Messed up as a king. God said, kill all of these animals. Then he didn't kill all of the animals. God sent a prophet to him like, hey, thought I asked you to kill the animals. And Saul was like, it was their idea. We're going to give it to the Lord. You know what those are? Lies and excuses. <laughs> That's one response to correction. Lying about it. No, it isn't that way. Excuses, it isn't my fault. If you really look at it, it's... The woman you gave me, Lord. That's what Adam tried. <laughs> uh, Adam, did you eat the fruit? It was the woman you gave me. <laughs> so it's her fault or your fault, but clearly not mine. Saul was sorry that he got caught, but not repentant. The second king in Israel, David, also not a perfect king. Ladies, if you're studying the life of David, I think you're coming up to it soon. Uh, he makes poor choices. God sends a prophet to him, tells him a story. David's like, that man's a sinner. <laughs> he deserves to die. And the prophet's like, it's you. <laughs> You're the man. And David doesn't say immediately, it was somebody else's fault. It was the circumstances I was in. He says, you're right. I was wrong. What I did was wrong. And the Lord immediately speaks through the prophet again and says, you're forgiven of this, but there's going to be consequences because of it. He did the wrong thing, but he was right with the Lord because he repented. When the Lord said, what you did was wrong, he's like, yep, what I did was wrong. <laughs> it's a very short conversation. It's easy to agree with the Lord in that. New Testament example, we have Peter and Judas. All the disciples were told that they were going to deny the Lord, and Peter led them, the disciples, uh, in a chorus of saying, we won't do it. Or even if they do it, Lord, Peter said, I, I certainly won't. And even though God could have gone line by line, or Jesus could have gone to each disciple and said, like, this is how you're going to deny me, this is how you're going to deny me, because Peter was the most vocal, Jesus detailed for Peter, this is how you're going to mess up. This is where you're going to get it wrong. You're going to deny me three times, one time is going to be to a little old schoolgirl, and you're going to be like, I don't know, you're going to swear. <laughs> It's all going to happen before the rooster crows. And then in the story, we see the rooster crowing. And in the moment the rooster crows, Jesus and Peter make eye contact. You know what the scripture says he did? He went away and wept bitterly. Godly sorrow. Like, man, God said I would mess up. He even told me exactly how I'd mess up. And then I messed up. Man, 
that was messed up. <laughs> That's what he thought about it, about himself. I did the wrong thing. Judas, when he realized that he had done the wrong thing, he's like, man, I messed up. There was no repentance in his heart. It led to death. He went out and hung himself. There was repentance available for him, but he didn't, he, he was like, nope. Sin, though it could be pleasurable for a season, ultimately leads to sorrow. It keeps us from death. The purpose of God's correction is that we may be partakers of his holiness. The purpose of God's correction is that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, it says, um, We are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The first bit of correction that God gives to us is the correction that we're sinners in need of a savior. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. To be wise scripturally means to understand that you don't understand everything there is to understand, but that God is in position and does have all of the understanding <laughs> and is able to give us understanding if we're willing to receive it. And that first bit of understanding he gives us is where we're at in relationship to him. It's not good. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's helpful information. <laughs> right? If you were driving down the road and they're like, hey, if you keep on going down this road, you're going to die. That's a sign I don't want to miss. <laughs> that's, that's the road we were all on. And he says repentance is what's needed. Repentance just means to turn around and go the other way. You could know that you're going the wrong way and continue going the wrong way. It's not helpful. I thought I was going home once. So it was, it was, there was a season in my life where I uh, moved 10 times in two years. Highly not recommended. I had a lot of books at the time. It would be one truckload of my books, one truckload of my bed and my furniture, and the other truckload of everything else I owned. Um, I don't recommend moving that much time, but I was on my way home, or so I thought, going down the road, and I was halfway to a house I no longer lived at when I realized I don't live here anymore. <laughs> but that realization that I'm going the wrong way didn't change anything, but it was instrumental in helping me turn around and go the right way. If I was just like, yep, I'm going the wrong way and continued in that, that would have been foolish, unwise. Scripture calls us to repentance. But that repentance isn't just an acknowledging, yeah, that's sinful. It's an actual change of direction, it a change of mind that actually results in a change of direction in our life. That first change happens when we say, Lord, I'm, I'm a bad director of my life. I've made all the wrong choices 100% of the time. <laughs> I'm going to not only let you be my savior, but I'm going to let you be my Lord. I'm going to let you say what's right and what's not right in my life. I'm going to expect you to correct me because I, I expect that I'm wrong most of the time apart from you. Right? We can be wise scripturally by knowing that we don't know and knowing who does know. If you're new to the Lord, don't be discouraged when he corrects you and think that it's because you're not a child of his. Just know that that's evidence that you're his kid. Ask somebody else how it's going with their correction with the Lord. If they're not being corrected by the Lord, say, do you want the Lord as your father? Because your father will correct you. <laughs> Repentance is how we're trained, and it's, it's a privilege to have that opportunity that the Lord would even let us repent. It's a privilege that came at a high cost to the Lord. It's what we're celebrating this morning with communion. If you're a mature believer, perhaps the uh, exhortation of remember what you forgot was what you needed this morning. Remember to not forget the exhortation that speaks to you as sons. If you don't know the Lord, then he's not yet your father. He's your creator and will be your judge. Uh, but he, he sent his son to die on a cross so that you could be an adopted son of his, that the righteousness of his own son, who was perfect in the face of imperfection, when he was surrounded by sinners, did not sin himself, that righteousness would be made available to you.
I'm going to call the worship team forward and uh, ask the men to come forward as well uh, to pass out the elements. And as they come forward, I'm going to uh, close us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, partake of the elements together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for being our Father who loves us enough to correct us. Lord, you love us to tell us to not pick up pennies off the ground and just pop them into our mouth. We ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, I pray that the word that you have spoken to each one, Lord, that we would give space to uh, not just in our heads, but in our hands and our feet. Lord, that from the overflow of our heart, there would be uh, correction that's received, that there would be godly sorrow in each one of us as you lovingly correct us, that you train us, that the hands which hang down would be strengthened, that what's dislocated may be healed because we've correctly responded to your correction. We thank you for Jesus, for sending him to die on the cross for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Only one
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:23, For what I receive from the Lord, that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he uh, broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me let's partake together father we thank you for jesus the author and perfecter of our salvation, uh, the one who makes repentance possible, uh, the one who never needed correction, but allows us to be able to receive correction from you. Lord, we thank you for loving each one of us as a good father in heaven. Lord, that you would take the time to correct us. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. Lord, and and telling us to uh, put down the pennies, Lord, and encouraging us to run strong the, the race that you've set before us, that we would be able to uh, endure. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that they would not be discouraged nor despise your correction when it comes. Lord, help me not to do that either. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go out this morning. Lord, that we would go in the joy of knowing that we belong to you. Lord, that you see every part of our life. And Lord, that you know how to speak with clarity to us. Lord, we lift up to you our pastor as he's away. Bless him as he has been uh, so great an instrument of your blessing in our lives as well. We pray that you would bring he and his wife home safely. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord be with each one of you this morning. Uh, what a privilege it is to be the children of God. I pray that as the Lord leads you and guides you this week, that your ears would be attentive uh, to his words uh, in leading you, guiding you, and even correcting you. Let's enjoy some fellowship with one another.